I have to put you on to Armoire, the convenient solution to effortless, fresh, and stylish dressing. With an Armoire membership, you can curate the perfect wardrobe with high-quality, unique brands tailored specifically to your taste. Simply take a five-minute style quiz, select items from your personalized closet, then your chosen styles arrive at your doorstep in as little as two days. When it's time for a wardrobe refresh, just swap out your current pieces for new-to-you styles. I go from professional to the carpool pickup line, so I need a diverse wardrobe. With Armoire, I always have something fresh and on-trend for any occasion, without the clutter. I recently edited my wardrobe to staple pieces only because Armoire allows me to add new pieces monthly and return them just in time for me to do it all over again. And by renting, rather than constantly buying new clothes, I'm contributing to sustainability. Armoire is currently helping me through my chic era with all the high fashion and edgy options that I am loving. And the empowering aspect of supporting a women-founded and women-led business is so cool. With their personalized styling suggestions and diverse designer offerings, Armoire has helped me define and refine my personal style, even as trends evolve and my body changes. Whether it's a date night, a professional event, a formal affair, or just a trip to the grocery store, Armoire ensures that I am always dressed to impress effortlessly. Right now, my listeners can give Armoire a try and get up to 50% off their first month. That's up to $125 off. Just visit armoire.style slash murderish. That's armoire.style, A-R-M-O-I-R-E dot style slash murderish to get up to 50% off your first month and never worry about what to wear again. Try Armoire today. The opinions expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Murderish podcast. Sensitive topics are discussed. Listener discretion is advised. It's February 8th of 2018. A man is lying on his back in the parking lot of a park in San Bernardino, California. He's been shot multiple times. He's struggling to breathe. The look of imminent death is in his eyes. He would be dead soon. Police caught up with the man's killer and it seemed this was just another homicide in a city previously dubbed the murder capital of California. But things are not always what they seem, as would be discovered in this case. This is Jamie and you're listening to Murderish. Join me as I examine a case that is a follow-up to the murder of Christy McKendall, which I covered in an earlier episode of Murderish. Have a listen to that episode if you haven't already. Also, stick around at the very end of this episode for an exciting announcement. Now, let's dive into today's case. This case takes us to San Bernardino, California. Located about 60 miles east of Los Angeles, San Bernardino is part of what's known as the Inland Empire in Southern California. The McDonald's fast food chain was actually established in San Bernardino in 1940 by Richard and Maurice McDonald. The city, which was chartered in 1905, 
won the All-American City Award in the late 1970s. Since then, however, the city has suffered a major decline from which it still has not recovered. San Bernardino has not had the best reputation over the last few decades, as violent crime, gang activity, and drug crimes within the city have been a major issue. In early 2018, San Bernardino had the highest murder rate in California and was known as the murder capital of California in years past. In February of 2018, San Bernardino would be the setting for yet another homicide. Shocking details about the victim's past would come to light. These details are likely the only reason his death even made the newspaper. Because without them, this would be just another murder in a city riddled by violent crime. On February 8th of 2018, at 5.19 in the evening, a call came in to 911. The caller, a homeless woman named Mary Reese, reported hearing three shots fired. Mary told the 911 operator that a man had just been shot at Wildwood Park in San Bernardino. In years past, kids would play Little League baseball at the park. At some point, however, the area began to go downhill and today, Wildwood Park is a place where drug deals and prostitution go down on a regular basis. The park is also home to a significant homeless population. During the 911 call, Mary told the operator that the man had a gunshot wound to his upper chest and that he was barely breathing. At one point, she can be heard telling somebody named Tina, later identified as the shooting victim's girlfriend, to do CPR on the man. On the phone, Mary described for the operator the man who shot him. She said the shooter was Hispanic and in his 20s or 30s. She said that he fled the scene in a motorhome, although she later described the vehicle as an SUV. She said that he was heading east on 40th, going toward Del Rosa Avenue after he left the scene. Tina Kozlowski, the victim's girlfriend, can be heard screaming in the background during the 911 call. Officers from the San Bernardino Police Department arrived at Wildwood Park very quickly after the 911 call came in. They were wearing body cams when they arrived, and footage from the cameras show a man lying on his back in the parking lot. He's wounded and bleeding and barely alive. His girlfriend, Tina, can be seen and heard wailing, calling out his name and asking if he's still alive. There are numerous onlookers at the scene, and dogs can be heard barking in the background. The body cam footage shows a police officer doing chest compressions on the man. It's a chaotic scene, but at one point, eerily, everyone goes quiet for just a moment, as the police officer and Tina stare intently at the man's chest, trying to see if he's still breathing. Then, the chaos resumes and body cam footage of the man shows that his eyes have already rolled back into his head. The man was quickly identified as 30-year-old Luke Miller, a transient who lived at Wildwood Park with his girlfriend, 32-year-old Tina Kozlowski. Luke was transported to St. Bernardine's Medical Center and admitted to the emergency room. Officer Flowers, who'd been one of the responders to the 911 call, elected to follow the ambulance transporting Luke. When the ambulance arrived at the hospital, Officer Flowers noticed that emergency responders were doing chest compressions on Luke as the gurney was taken out of the vehicle. 
Despite their efforts, Luke was pronounced dead at St. Bernardine's Medical Center at 6 p.m. that evening. With the news of Luke's passing, officers contacted the coroner and Rebecca London of the San Bernardino County Coroner's Office arrived at the emergency room to begin her investigation into his death. The death certificate listed Luke as a high school graduate and that amusement park ride operator was his usual occupation. On the day he died, the San Bernardino Police Department received a phone call from a woman named Janice Vary, who said she heard that her nephew, Luke Miller, had been shot. Police informed her at that time that he had in fact been shot and that he succumbed to his injuries. Janice then notified Luke's parents, Grant Miller and Maria Brown, of their son's death. Dr. Brian Hutchins, a forensic pathologist with the San Bernardino County Sheriff's Department Coroner's Division, completed an autopsy on Luke's body on February 20th, 12 days after he was killed. The autopsy report indicated that Luke was a well-nourished white male with brown hair, blue eyes, and a fair complexion. He is listed as being 6 feet tall and weighing 174 pounds. The report also noted multiple tattoos on his body, including marijuana leaves on his lower leg and a swastika tattoo on his upper back. Dr. Hutchins found multiple gunshot wounds to Luke's body, including one to his neck, with the bullet entering the front of his neck and exiting through the back. Another gunshot wound was found to his abdomen. The first bullet went through Luke's right forearm, then through the right side of his chest, and lastly perforated his liver. A bullet was found still inside of his liver. Another gunshot wound is noted on Luke's left hand. A fourth gunshot wound is found to have entered through his right lower chest area. This bullet perforated his heart and proved fatal. Dr. Hutchins found several red abrasions to his right and left hands, forearm, and knees, as well as abrasions to his right eyebrow, all of which seemed to be indications that Luke was in some sort of struggle before he died. A toxicology report indicated that he had amphetamine and methamphetamine in his system at the time of his death. Dr. Hutchins concluded that the causes of death were gunshot wounds to Luke's chest and abdomen and that death likely occurred within minutes. The manner of death was listed as homicide. Luke was eventually cremated. Luke Miller, born on December 30th of 1987, grew up and attended school in the San Bernardino area. At the age of 14, Luke committed a serious crime and would end up serving three years in a youth correctional facility as a result of his conviction. After serving time, Luke's life continued to spiral downward. He got hooked on meth and had been homeless for at least a decade prior to his death. At some point after he served his time, Luke met a grifter named Tina Kozlowski, and the two shared a drug habit in common. They dated for about 13 years and had several children together. All of their children, however, had been taken away and custody awarded to Tina's sister due to their drug use and lifestyle. Tina had given birth to another baby not long before Luke was killed, but the baby was taken away from them as Tina recovered in the hospital. Luke had previously lived with his aunt, Janice, who was the first to be informed of his death after she called the police department to inquire about something she'd heard about her nephew. 
Janice kicked Luke out of her house for unknown reasons sometime around 2014. At the time of Luke's death, he and Tina lived primarily at Wildwood Park in San Bernardino, along with many other transients. The couple have been described as Bonnie and Clyde, opportunists who took advantage of people for a quick come-up. They lived day-to-day, often high on drugs and scheming to survive. Luke and Tina both had previous criminal records and had spent time incarcerated. While in prison, Luke was inked with white pride tattoos on his legs. He had a propensity for violence, most of which was directed at Tina. Luke had been convicted of domestic violence against her, even kicking her while she was pregnant with their child. If you're like me, you've run out of comfy outfits to wear during this crazy time we're living in. Switch things up and try Beta Brand Dress Pant Yoga Pants. I've been wearing the skinny leg style for months now and they are amazing. When I wear them, it feels like I never got out of my PJs, but I look like I actually put thought into my outfit for the day. Seriously, my dress pant yoga pants are so comfortable and stylish. I can wear them working from home, to the grocery store, or on a date. They're so versatile. These pants fit perfectly, which is why so many women have ditched their typical work pants for dress pant yoga pants. These pants don't wrinkle easily and don't dig into your skin. They are figure flattering and as comfy as your favorite pair of yoga pants. There are so many styles and colors to choose from, like cropped, skinny leg, boot cut, and more. And Beta Brand launches new, fashion-forward styles weekly. Right now, my listeners can get 25% off their first order when you go to betabrand.com murderish. That's 25% off your first order for a limited time at betabrand.com murderish. Find out why women are buying five different pairs of these pants. Go to betabrand.com slash murderish for 25% off. I used to waste time standing in line at the post office every time I shipped Patreon perk packages. Now I use stamps.com and save so much time and money. With stamps.com, I never leave my house to ship packages. I just print postage from my computer and call my carrier for a pickup or just leave the package in my mailbox. Not only have Stamps.com saved me time, I save 5 cents off of every stamp and up to 62% off USPS and UPS shipping rates. Which brings me to another great perk. Through your Stamps.com account, you can even ship via UPS, not just USPS. Listen, Stamps.com had me at money and time savings and that I can ship packages in my PJs. Stamps.com is such a game-changing tool for my business. Right now, my listeners can get a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale without any long-term commitment. Just go to Stamps.com, click the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type Murderish. That's Stamps.com, enter Murderish. When police arrived at the scene the evening of the shooting, Tina gave them a description of the man who had shot Luke. Although Mary Reese, the 911 caller, described the shooter as being in his 20s or 30s, Tina can be heard on the police body cam footage frantically describing him as an older Hispanic man, maybe in his 50s. When Tina was interviewed by detectives, 
She provided details regarding what allegedly happened that evening. She said the perpetrator showed up at Wildwood Park in his RV. She said that he got out of the vehicle and began talking to her and Luke. She said he asked them if he could buy some meth. Tina told investigators that she knew the man was a weirdo from the moment he pulled into the park, stating that he had drawn the curtains in his RV as soon as he parked. When the man asked them if he could buy some meth, Tina said that she told him she would have to score the drugs from someone else. When asked by investigators who she scored the drugs from, Tina would only tell him that the man's name was L. Although she was hesitant at first to reveal the drug dealer's name, she eventually relented and identified him by his first name. For various reasons, I'm not going to refer to the man by his real name. I'll refer to him as Lawrence. Tina told the interviewing officer that she didn't feel comfortable around the man who had shown up at the park in his RV. Despite this, she said she eventually went inside of his vehicle to smoke meth. She said she only did so because her boyfriend, Luke, had talked her into it because he wanted to smoke meth with the man. When she and Luke got inside the man's RV, Tina said that he immediately wanted to lock the door, but it wouldn't lock. So, she said, the man tied the door shut and blocked it with a ladder and some other items. Tina said that the three of them were going to smoke meth together, but realized that none of them had a lighter. Then, the vibe changed, and the man began acting very bizarre, according to Tina. She said the man picked up a pillow, later described by her as a couch cushion, and began caressing and talking to it. Then, Tina said the man walked toward the back of the RV, pulled out a rifle, and without warning, began firing at her and Luke. She indicated that he ambushed them for no apparent reason, as they were sitting at the RV kitchen table. She said that after Luke was shot, he was able to kick the RV door open, and then he fell out of it onto the ground. With Luke lying on the parking lot ground just outside of the RV door, Tina said the man then pointed the gun right at her, firing two shots but both missed. Still inside of the RV, Tina said that she and the man began to fight. She said the two of them eventually fell out of the RV door and continued fighting in the parking lot near Luke, who was lying on the ground suffering from multiple gunshot wounds. She said that during their fight, the man punched her several times in the face. In the police body cam footage, it's clear that Tina is bleeding from her nose. Tina said the perpetrator then got back into his RV and quickly drove off. At that point, Tina said she went over to Luke and she could see that he had been shot in the arm and the chest. She said she attempted to help him, but he was unresponsive. Police arrived at the scene soon after the shooter fled the scene. They took measures to save Luke, but he was too badly wounded. The day after the incident, law enforcement came upon an abandoned RV in an alley on 39th Street, about two miles from the scene of the shooting. Officers looked inside of the RV and found blood stains which were consistent with the shooting. Also found inside were two unfired .223 caliber rifle cartridges, which had been concealed in a bag full of clothes. Although no fired cartridge casings were found, bullet fragments were discovered on a blanket inside the RV. 
a blue and white tennis shoe, and a black Jansport backpack were also found inside the vehicle and recorded as evidence. After looking up the RV's registration, officers found out that it was registered to a man named Roger Ocampo. While officers were searching the vehicle, a woman showed up and identified herself as Loretta Ocampo, Roger's ex-wife. Apparently, one of Loretta's daughters had called her earlier in the day and told her that she saw yellow police tape in the parking lot of Wildwood Park. Knowing this was a location that Roger frequented, Loretta decided to get into her car and drive to the park to investigate. On her way there, she noticed red and blue flashing lights and drove up to the scene to find Roger's abandoned RV. Loretta confirmed for officers that the RV belonged to Roger, but she said she had not seen her ex-husband since the day before, after she kicked him out of the house. Loretta told officers that Roger had been using meth lately and that he left their house in his RV after she told him he needed to leave. When questioned about the shooting that occurred the day prior, Loretta said she knew nothing about it. At that point, Loretta asked an officer what happened in regard to the shooting, but he said he could not tell her anything. When Loretta got back to her car, however, another officer called her and said they had reason to believe that Roger had killed someone the day before. This came as a complete surprise to Loretta, as Roger didn't even own a gun, according to her. When questioned further by the officer, Loretta indicated that Roger was not a confrontational person. She told him that she had called him a pussy before because he would never do anything when someone would harm him. She said he would just pace back and forth instead of reacting with violence. The officer then asked if she could provide contact information for any of Roger's family members, but Loretta refused. She said she didn't want them to be upset with her for giving out their contact information. She told the officer that Roger had not been in contact with his family that she was aware of and said that his family was upset with him as they believed he was blowing his inheritance money. Roger had recently received a large lump sum of money after his mother passed away. After informing Loretta of the seriousness of the situation, she hesitantly provided the officer with contact information for some of Roger's family members in the San Bernardino area. Having found the RV that likely was the scene of Luke Miller's shooting death and identifying the person who owned it, detectives pulled six photographs together, one of which was Roger Ocampo. They showed the photos to Luke's girlfriend, Tina Kozlowski. At that point, she identified Roger Ocampo as being the person who shot her boyfriend and attempted to shoot her inside of his RV. A blue tennis shoe with white trim, matching the one found inside of Roger's RV, was recovered in the parking lot the night of the shooting. During this interview with Tina, she identified the shoe as belonging to the man who'd shot Luke, now identified as Roger Ocampo. With these discoveries, detectives pinned 46-year-old Roger Ocampo as their primary suspect. Detectives secured an arrest warrant for Roger and put out an APB to locate him. He was described as a transient who was armed and dangerous. After Roger was identified as the suspect, Officer Hoffer of the San Bernardino PD realized 
that he and a trainee officer had encountered Roger in his RV on the same day the shooting occurred. Officer Hoffer indicated that just prior to the shooting, Roger's RV had gotten stuck at the intersection of 40th Street and Mountain View Avenue, not far from Wildwood Park. Officer Hoffer and the trainee waited with Roger for a tow truck to show up. The tow truck driver was able to get the RV moving again. Not long after this, Roger arrived at Wildwood Park where everything unfolded. Officer Hoffer recalled that at the time they encountered Roger, he was wearing blue tennis shoes with white trim. During trial, Officer Hoffer's encounter with Roger that day would become a crucial piece of evidence. Roger Ocampo, born on July 17th of 1971, was raised in San Bernardino, California. The second oldest child with two sisters and one brother, Roger grew up playing Pop Warner football and Little League baseball in the area. At some point during his childhood, Roger's father received a promotion at work which required him to move the family to El Centro, California. After living there for six years, Roger's family moved back to San Bernardino, where he attended Central High School. During his teenage years, Roger was in martial arts and played freshman football. As an adult, Roger struggled with drug addiction. At the time of the shooting, Roger was not regularly employed but worked as a handyman from time to time. Roger has been described as having trouble articulating himself, but also as being very talented at repairing and fixing things. He was living with his ex-wife, Loretta, and her children at the time of the shooting. Although Roger did not have any biological children, he treated and cared for Loretta's children as his own. While Loretta supported the family financially, Roger stayed home and took care of the kids and the house. He would feed the kids every day and get them ready for school, and he kept an immaculate house. His defense attorney described him as Mr. Mom. Roger and Loretta's relationship was not without its problems. At some point during their marriage, Roger, while high on drugs, physically abused his wife. He was convicted of inflicting corporal injury on a spouse and sentenced to two years in prison. After that incident, Loretta left Roger and told him he would never be able to return unless he gave up drugs and promised never to hit her again. Roger's criminal history includes convictions for drugs, robbery, various parole violations, and other crimes. Although the couple eventually divorced, Roger came back after he had been clean and sober for 12 years, and Loretta took him back. They had been back together for about a year at the time of the shooting, but they never officially remarried. Although the couple had gotten back together, at the time of the shooting, Loretta had kicked Roger out of the house, and he had been sleeping in the driveway inside of his RV. Roger's mom had recently passed away, and he inherited a lump sum of money after her house was sold. Loretta indicated that he bought an RV with the inheritance money and told her that he wanted to get his head together. Just a month prior to the shooting, Roger had rented a cabin in Big Bear for the whole family to enjoy. Unfortunately, after that family vacation, Roger began using drugs again. 
Loretta said that he would take off for days in his RV, and she had no idea where he was. The day before Roger encountered Luke and Tina at Wildwood Park, Loretta found women's clothing inside of Roger's RV. She confronted him and asked if he was seeing someone else. After that, she left a note on the nightstand inside of Roger's RV. In the note, Loretta wrote that she was done and that Roger needed to leave, which he did. After 12 days on the run, at around noon on February 20th, Roger Ocampo walked into the San Bernardino Police Department and turned himself in. While there, Detective Flesher attempted to get a statement from him regarding the shooting, but Roger replied, I want to have a lawyer appointed to me. It didn't matter, though. Roger was arrested based on the evidence police had collected, and he was held on $2 million bail. He was charged with the murder of Luke Miller and the attempted murder of Tina Kozlowski. I'm conscious about taking care of my hair, which is why I love Pros customized hair products. I've been washing my hair with Pros for a few months now, and I can see that it's shinier than before. To start off, I took an in-depth quiz on the Pros website and answered questions about my eating habits, living environment, zip code, and more. Then, Pros went to work customizing shampoo and conditioner formulated just for me. My Pros hair products have a blend of ingredients that address my specific hair concerns, which is why I've already told my teenager that she is strictly forbidden from using it. I mean, the bottles literally have my name printed on them. Based on my quiz answers, Pros formulated smooth and vibrant purify and detox shampoo for me, as well as smooth solution UV defense conditioner. Pros is the healthy hair regimen with your name all over it. Take your free in-depth hair quiz and get 15% off your order today. Go to pros.com slash murderish. That's pros ecom slash murderish for your free in-depth hair quiz and 15% off. When I was 18 years old, a strange man followed me home and entered my bedroom. Since then, I have put home security as a top priority. I use Simply Safe to protect my family, and here's why. With Simply Safe, we get an arsenal of security equipment to keep an eye on every room in our house. With all of the cameras and sensors in our security system, I feel safe and protected, a priceless feeling. If there's an emergency, my Simply Safe system is equipped to send police, fire, or medical professionals right away. Here's the icing on the cake. You can set up your Simply Safe security system in less than an hour. It's so easy, and there are no tricky contracts to sign. You'll get protection starting at just $15 per month. Voted best overall home security of 2020. Try Simply Safe today at simplysafe.com/murderish. You get free shipping and a 60-day risk-free trial. There's nothing to lose. That's simplysafe.com/murderish. On February 10th of 2020, Roger Ocampo went on trial at San Bernardino Superior Court. The trial was presided over by Judge Steve Malone. He was charged with first-degree murder and use of a firearm in Luke Miller's death. In addition, Roger was charged with attempted murder and use of a firearm for firing the gun at Tina. 
he faced a sentence of 90 years to life in prison if convicted. Prior to trial, the DA had offered him a plea deal that carried a sentence of 25 years, which Roger declined. Then they offered him a deal that carried a sentence of 15 years to life if he would agree to plead guilty to second-degree murder. Again, Roger turned the offer down, insisting that he was innocent. Though Roger was adamant about his innocence, according to his sister, he was terrified at the thought of spending the rest of his life in prison, knowing that a jury made up of complete strangers would decide his fate also made him extremely nervous. Roger had nothing but time to obsess on these thoughts as he sat in jail for two years awaiting his trial. Deputy District Attorney Larissa Ruscher tried the case against Roger. The DA's basic theory of the crime was in line with Tina Kozlowski's statements regarding what happened, that she and Luke were approached by Roger, who wanted to buy meth. After securing meth for him, Luke and Tina went inside of Roger's RV that February 2018 evening to smoke meth with the defendant. As they were sitting at the RV kitchen table, Roger ambushed Luke and Tina, who, according to the DA, were unarmed. Ruscher claimed that with a rifle in hand, Roger opened fire on the couple, striking Luke four times before he stumbled out of the RV door. The DA also claimed that Roger had attempted to shoot Tina while inside the RV, but he missed. Tina Kozlowski, Luke's longtime girlfriend, took the witness stand for the prosecution. In front of the jury, she again said that Roger Ocampo was acting strange while they were inside of his RV. She said that he had been high on meth for nine days and was hugging a couch cushion and talking to it. She said that at some point, Roger walked to the back of the RV, pulled out a rifle, and started shooting at them. During her testimony, Tina added some colorful comments. Although she had not mentioned a physical altercation between Luke and Roger in her interviews with police, she said on the stand that she was proud of Luke, as he had crushed Roger that night. Apparently, she believed that Luke had gotten the best of Roger during the fight they had inside the RV. Also on the witness stand, Tina testified that Roger hit like a bitch. D.A. Ruscher played footage from the police body cams for the jury. Perhaps this move was strategic, an attempt to show how distraught Tina was upon seeing her boyfriend gravely injured. I've seen this footage, and I can see how it might elicit an emotional response from a jury. In the footage, Tina is wailing and crying out, baby, baby, and asking if Luke is still alive, while Luke is clearly very close to death. Ruscher also pointed out that Roger Ocampo was a convicted felon with numerous criminal charges. While D.A. Ruscher presented the jury with an eyewitness to the crime and highlighted that the man who shot Luke was a convicted criminal, what she did not provide was a motive for the shooting. Other than Tina's testimony about Roger acting weird right before he shot Luke, Ruscher could not tell the jury why he took those actions. Roger Ocampo did have a colorful past, as admitted by his attorney. When the DA's office initially got his case, they saw in the police files that Roger fled the scene of the crime 
and ditched the murder weapon. Roger's actions showed a consciousness of guilt, which did not bode well for him. These facts, along with Roger's criminal record, likely made the DA's office believe that their case against him would be fairly straightforward and that a conviction would not be overly difficult to secure. Most defendants in Roger's position and without the financial means would be assigned a public defender and likely accept a plea deal that would have him serve time whether or not he was guilty. Fast forward to trial, D.A. Rusha would learn that she and her team would have to work much harder than they initially bargained for. The DA's office likely had not anticipated that Roger, a homeless man and convicted criminal, would secure a defense team who would go through all of the evidence with a fine-tooth comb and produce an unlikely witness who would counter all of their star witnesses' claims. After Roger was arrested, his family, who do not have an abundance of wealth, pooled their resources together and hired a defense attorney by the name of Raj Maline. Maline is a well-known and respected defense attorney. Prior to working on Roger's case, Maline defended Charles Chase Merritt, who went on trial for the murder of the McStay family. The McStay case drew widespread media attention after the family of four went missing out of San Diego, California in 2010. Merritt was eventually convicted of first-degree murder for the deaths of Joseph McStay, a business associate of Merritt's, as well as Joseph's wife, Summer, and their two sons, ages three and four. The bodies of the four family members had been found buried in a Southern California desert. After being hired by Roger's family, Maline immediately had the court declare his client indigent in order to open up funding for resources like a private investigator and a forensics expert. With those funds, Maline hired CSI forensics expert Randolph Beasley, who goes by Randy, as well as private investigator Raquel Aragon. Interestingly, Randy used to play Little League Baseball at Wildwood Park when he was a child. Maline and his defense team got right to work on conducting their own investigation. Their investigation included extensive efforts to find witnesses who could corroborate Roger's account of what happened, that he had shot Luke Miller in self-defense after he was viciously attacked. Most of the witnesses, however, were transients who were often high on drugs, not the most reliable sources. This would prove to be a major hurdle for the defense, as at first, it seemed their only witness to the incident was Roger. The defense's investigation also included a reconstruction of the crime scene by forensics expert Randy Beasley. This reconstruction inside the RV uncovered crucial evidence that the defense would use to counter Tina Kozlowski's testimony, which the prosecution's case hinged upon. While the defense team were making headway on their defense strategy, they would uncover evidence that none of them saw coming. As part of their investigation, they did a deep dive into the victim, Luke Miller. What came back was a shock to everyone. Roger's defense team learned that Luke Miller, at the age of 14, had taken part in a vicious crime against a teenage girl 
named Christy McKendall back in 2002. After obtaining a transcript of the opening statement made by the prosecutor who tried the case against Luke, Roger's defense team learned the utterly disturbing details of the crime against Christy and Luke Miller's role in it. On April 2, 2002, 16-year-old Christy McKendall was brutally murdered by three teenage boys in an isolated canyon in Highland, California. Christy was lured to the canyon by 18-year-old Jonathan Stevens, 15-year-old Joshua Kernut, and Luke Miller, who was 14 years old at the time. Shortly after arriving in the canyon, Stevens beat Christy to death with a eucalyptus tree branch and strangled her. After she was dead, Stevens and Kernut sexually abused Christy before the three boys threw her lifeless body inside of a nearby well where it was discovered by a hiker a few days later. The oldest of the three perpetrators, Jonathan Stevens, admitted to police that he had always wanted to know what it was like to have sex with a dead body, and that seemed to be his only motive for plotting to kill Christy that day. He was sentenced to life in prison with no possibility for parole for his role in the brutal crime. Joshua Kernut, 15 years old at the time of Christie's murder, was sentenced to 15 years to life in prison. Today, he's in his early 30s and currently incarcerated at the Mule Creek State Prison in Ione, California. Luke Miller, the youngest of the three perpetrators and the only one who was not tried as an adult, was sentenced to serve three years in a youth correctional facility. Luke had held Christy down as she was savagely beaten and strangled by Jonathan Stevens. Armed with this information, Roger's defense team had a potential ace up their sleeve to demonstrate that the victim in question was no stranger to violence, and that Roger's claim of being brutally attacked by Luke was entirely believable. Although the defense uncovered damning information about Luke Miller, they also knew that they had an uphill battle defending Roger given his past criminal record and his actions the night of the shooting. Upon learning about Luke's previous murder conviction, the defense immediately subpoenaed the other two defendants in that crime, Jonathan Stevens and Joshua Kernut. In response, both inmates were transported from prison and held in San Bernardino where Roger's trial was taking place. In addition, the defense filed a motion requesting to allow Luke's previous murder conviction to come in as evidence in Roger's trial. The defense argued that this information was crucial as it would show the jury that Luke had a propensity for violence, and this fell in line with Roger's claim that he had shot Luke in self-defense after he attacked him. Judge Malone, however, stated that the details of Luke's previous crime against Christy McKendall were so heinous that they would prove to be far too prejudicial to the prosecution's case. Judge Malone believed that the jury would not be able to see past the heinous nature of the crime against Christy McKendall, and as such, he denied the defense's request to have this information come in during trial. This was a huge blow to the defense. They would have to find another way to show the jury that Luke Miller was a violent person, and that Roger's claim of self-defense was valid. Although Judge Malone refused to allow Luke's previous conviction to come into trial, 
Both of his co-defendants had to remain in San Bernardino during the trial in the event the judge changed his mind and allowed that information to come in. If that was the case, then Maline would call both Stevens and Kernute to testify about the crime against Christy McKendall and Luke's part in it. According to Raj Maline, Judge Malone came close to changing his mind at one point during the trial, but it never actually happened. Maline never had the opportunity to question Jonathan Stevens or Joshua Canute about Luke's role in Christie's murder. When Maline began presenting his case, it was clear to the jury that the defense had a much different theory of what happened the day that Luke was killed. This was not a random murder by a man who was high on meth, as the DA alleged. Maline told the jury that Roger killed Luke in self-defense. Maline said that prior to arriving at Wildwood Park, Roger had stopped at Del Taco to buy food for homeless people who lived at the park. According to Maline, transients who lived at the park were a pseudo-family to Roger. He felt comfortable among them. Maline told the jury that when Roger arrived at the park in his RV, Tina approached him and asked him if he wanted to buy meth. Although Roger had been trying to get his life together during this time, he had just been kicked out of the house by his ex-wife, and this made him vulnerable. Given his weak mental state at the time, according to Maline, Roger agreed to buy meth from Tina. Having recently inherited about $30,000, Roger pulled out a wad of cash to pay her for the drugs. Tina would later admit that she saw numerous $120 bills in Roger's hands. After seeing Roger's cash, Tina walked over to a gazebo where residents of Wildwood Park often congregate. Lawrence, the man whose name she hesitantly provided to investigators, was standing under the gazebo when Tina approached him and said that Roger had a bunch of cash. With Luke standing nearby, Tina, according to the defense, told Lawrence and Luke, we're going to get this money, meaning that they were going to jack Roger. After buying $20 worth of meth from Lawrence, Maline said that Luke and Tina went back to Roger's RV and made their way inside uninvited. Maline said that they approached Roger under the guise that they wanted to sell him a rifle. They knew that Roger had a lot of money on him. Tina saw it with her own eyes. The gun sale, according to Maline, was just a ploy for Luke and Tina to gain entry into Roger's RV so they could rob him. At first, Roger agreed to buy the rifle for $600. After thinking about it, however, he decided against it because he knew that his ex-wife, Loretta, would not approve and he was already in a lot of trouble with her. According to Maline, after Roger got spooked and decided against buying the gun, Tina turned to Luke and said something to the effect of, are you going to let him get away with that? And that was Luke's cue to attack Roger. Luke, according to Maline, began furiously assaulting Roger, body slamming him, kicking him, and striking him numerous times in the face. Maline said that after their plan to sell Roger a gun fell apart, Luke and Tina were going to get his money no matter what. After attacking Roger, according to Maline, Luke went toward the back of the RV and retrieved the gun they were attempting to sell. Prior to the fight, 
the gun had been hidden inside of a couch cushion in the RV. With Roger following close behind him, Luke took the gun out of a couch cushion, at which time another struggle ensued, with both men fighting to get a grip on the rifle. Roger explained to Maline prior to trial that at one point during their struggle, he felt Luke release pressure off of the gun. Roger said he took advantage of this and quickly secured a tight grip on the rifle. Roger described this moment as a death struggle, saying that he knew whoever ended up with the gun was going to leave with his life. Maline went on to say that Roger, now with his hands on the gun and fearing for his life, saw Luke reach toward a black backpack that he and Tina brought with them inside the RV. At this time, afraid that Luke might attack him again, Roger fired the first shot, striking Luke in the fleshy outer part of his left hand, causing a significant injury that resulted in blood and tissue being projected onto the walls and the ceiling of the RV. After the crime scene reconstruction was processed by CSI forensics expert Randy Beasley, the defense was able to establish where Luke's left hand was at the time he was first shot. Based on the direction of the blood spatter and other factors, the defense was able to show the jury that Luke's left hand was directly over the backpack, which corroborated Roger's claim that Luke reached for the bag just before Roger first shot him. The reconstruction also showed the jury where Roger was standing at the time he fired the gun, which the defense said disproved Tina's version of events. She said that she and Luke were ambushed as they sat at the kitchen table with their backs turned to Roger. This, according to the crime scene reconstruction findings, could not have been possible. The reconstruction proved to be vital to the defense's case. The findings were so powerful that during the middle of trial, the DA dropped all charges relating to Tina Kozlowski. The reconstruction found no bullet holes to back up her claim that Roger had fired the gun at her but missed. Furthermore, inside of the RV was a very tight space. If Roger had fired the rifle at Tina twice at point-blank range, it's highly unlikely that he would have missed. With their case weakened, the DA continued charging forward with the first-degree murder charge against Roger. Continuing to describe what happened, Raj Malin said that his client fired the gun at Luke, striking him several times as they were inside of his RV. After Luke stumbled and fell out of the RV door, Malin said that Tina jumped on Roger and began furiously attacking him. Roger told Malin prior to trial that he had a very difficult time getting Tina off of him. She had a tight hold on him and she was not letting go. Malin believes that it's likely she was high on meth at the time. Roger and Tina eventually fell out of the RV door as they struggled, and Roger, according to Malin, punched Tina in the face in order to get her off of him. This coincides with the blood that was visible on Tina's face in the police body cam footage. Maline pointed out that almost the entire investigation conducted by law enforcement was centered around finding Roger after he fled the scene. After he turned himself in, law enforcement closed their case, never having conducted a thorough investigation in order to find out what happened that night. 
Malene further claimed that after Tina provided statements about what allegedly happened, nobody made an attempt to corroborate her story. If they had, they surely would have discovered that there were major issues with the validity of her statements. As part of her investigation, the private investigator hired by the defense, Raquel Aragon, interviewed a former neighbor of Luke Miller's. The neighbor, who I will refer to as female neighbor, told Aragon that she was aware of Luke and Tina's drug use and that she was afraid of Luke. The female neighbor described for Aragon an incident that occurred in 2015, during which Luke pulled a knife on her and threatened to stab her. The female neighbor testified to this incident during trial, and it seemed clear she always believed that Luke would follow through on his threat. Although Judge Malone denied their motion to introduce Luke's murder conviction, through the female neighbor's testimony, the defense was able to show the jury that Luke Miller was a violent person. The defense then called an unexpected witness to the stand. Interestingly, it was Roger Ocampo who first alerted his defense team that they needed to speak with this witness as he could provide crucial information about what happened the night of the shooting. Lawrence, not his real name, a transient who lived at Wildwood Park for many years, was incarcerated for a parole violation at the West Valley Detention Center in 2019. This is the same man from which Tina bought meth the night of the shooting. Coincidentally, the West Valley Detention Center was the same location where Roger Ocampo was in custody for the alleged murder of Luke Miller, and he was there at the same time as Lawrence. Prior to trial, Roger told his defense attorney that while he was incarcerated, he overheard Lawrence talking to another inmate about how he had been living at Wildwood Park since 2013. The very mention of Wildwood Park caught Roger's attention. Roger and Lawrence had never met each other before, but after overhearing that Lawrence had a connection to the park, Roger decided to approach him while the two of them were out in the yard. Roger explained his situation, and as it turned out, Lawrence knew a lot about what happened the night that Roger shot Luke. Almost immediately, Lawrence said to Roger, I know who you are. I can't believe what they did to you. Lawrence proceeded to tell Roger that he was present on the night of the shooting and that he was aware of a pre-arranged plan that Luke and Tina laid out just before everything went down. As Lawrence entered the courtroom to testify, the defense likely breathed a sigh of relief as getting him there proved to be a very difficult task. Lawrence, a transient and on-again, off-again drug user, was very hard to reach leading up to trial. In addition, getting him to court clean and coherent was not easy. Still, knowing that he held vital information that could help Roger, Raquel Aragon, the private investigator, went to great lengths to reach Lawrence and get him to court. Ultimately, she succeeded, and shockingly, Lawrence would prove to be their star witness. Lawrence, who was known as the CEO of Wildwood Park, said on the witness stand that Luke and Tina set Roger up on the night in question. 
He said that the couple, after learning that Roger had a bunch of cash, planned to jack him. He testified that Tina told him that she and her baby daddy, referring to Luke, were going to try to see how much money they could get from Roger. Lawrence said that after he sold Tina $20 worth of meth, she told him, don't go far because we won't be long, right before she and Luke entered the RV. Lawrence went on to say that Luke and Tina are Bonnie and Clyde, thieves who constantly stole from transients in the park. He testified that he had known the couple since 2013 and that they have three children together. He said that all of their children had been taken away from them. He told the jury that he had witnessed Luke beating Tina while she was pregnant with their last child. He described Luke Miller as a possessive and confrontational man who was known to cause trouble with people in the park. He confirmed in front of the jury his belief that Luke and Tina intended to rob Roger that night, based upon his conversation with Tina just before everything happened. He described seeing Luke and Tina enter Roger's RV, and about three minutes later, he said that he observed the vehicle rocking back and forth as if there was a struggle going on inside. Then, he heard three gunshots and saw Luke stumble out of the RV, take two steps to the left, and then fall to the ground. Lawrence said he then saw Tina fighting with Roger, who then got back into his RV and sped off. Lawrence said he left the park shortly after the incident because he did not want to be involved. Prior to trial, in an interview with P.I. Aragon, Lawrence said that leading up to trial, Tina had been avoiding the DA as she knew the truth was going to come out about what she and Luke did to Roger on the night in question. He said that every time police officers came looking for her at the park, Tina would hide from them. Prior to becoming homeless, Lawrence had a family and worked as a cook. He had previously gotten a scholarship to attend college, but his life took a different path when he became addicted to drugs. Lawrence suffered a severe spider bite at some point during adulthood, which resulted in his leg being amputated. Interestingly, Lawrence referred to Tina Kozlowski as family. Surveillance footage taken by the private investigator prior to trial shows the two of them greeting each other with a hug at Wildwood Park. Despite his close relationship with Tina, Lawrence proceeded to testify about what he knew of the night in question as according to him, he just wanted to do the right thing. Although Lawrence had his issues, on the witness stand, he came off to the jury as being highly credible and believable. In a rare move, the defense put Roger Ocampo on the stand to testify on his own behalf. This was going to be a challenge, as according to Maline, Roger had no experience speaking in public and also struggled to articulate himself. Even so, Maline wholeheartedly believed in his client's innocence. He also believed that they did not have much in the way of impactful witnesses, so Roger's testimony would be important. Leading up to trial, P.I. Aragon worked extensively with Roger in order to prepare him to testify. As expected, D.A. Ruscher dug into Roger on the witness stand. At one point, she asked aggressively, and she didn't have any weapons, did she? Referring to Tina, to which Roger responded, Luke was Tina's weapon. 
the DA and Tina had both claimed during trial that Roger was high on meth at the time of the shooting. That said, Officer Hoffer, who had encountered Roger just prior to the shooting, when his RV got stuck in the road, testified that he was completely coherent at the time he encountered him. Officer Hoffer testified that it did not appear that Roger was high on drugs at the time he spoke with him. According to the defense, law enforcement never bothered to go through the black backpack that Luke and Tina left inside of Roger's RV. When the defense went through the backpack, they found a treasure trove of evidence. Tina Kozlowski claimed that she, Luke, and Roger were not able to smoke meth because none of them had a lighter. Found inside of the backpack, however, were several lighters. In addition to this, numerous knives were found inside of the backpack, which may have been why Luke reached for the bag right before Roger shot him. He may have been reaching for a weapon after losing his grip on the rifle. The defense had managed to rattle the prosecution, countering all of Tina's testimony and presenting a surprising witness who testified that Roger had been set up by Luke and Tina. This, along with their findings after the crime scene reconstruction, poked major holes in the DA's case. That said, there was no getting around the fact that Roger, a convicted criminal, had fled the scene and gotten rid of the weapon. And while their star witness came off as highly credible in court, Lawrence, the CEO of Wildwood Park, was still a drug dealer with a lengthy criminal record. Just as Raj Malin was scheduled to make his closing statements, the court was unexpectedly shut down on March 16th of 2020 due to the COVID-19 pandemic. On May 15th, the court reopened, but only for Roger's trial to proceed. Nobody was allowed inside the courtroom unless they were essential to the trial. Malin, in front of an empty gallery, made his closing statements, and then the jury began deliberating. At one point during deliberations, the jury sent a note to Judge Malone asking what the difference was between first and second degree murder. This did not look good for Roger, as it seemed the jury was going to convict but was deciding between first and second degree murder. On May 19th of 2020, the jury, made up of seven women and five men, had reached a verdict. After four hours of deliberation, they found Roger Ocampo not guilty. Roger wept in relief, and it was clear the trial had taken a toll on the jury as well. Several jury members cried after the verdict was read. After the trial was over, the defense team had a lengthy conversation with many of the jurors. As it turned out, the jury members had very strong opinions about the investigation, the DA, and the decision to file charges and take Roger's case to trial. Based on their comments, it's clear the jury believed the issues with this case started with law enforcement's poor investigation. Jurors commented that law enforcement did a poor job of collecting evidence and didn't even do their own blood analysis as the defense team did. They said that law enforcement had evidence in their possession, which they failed to analyze. The contents of the black backpack, which was left at the scene by Luke and Tina, were never reviewed by law enforcement. The contents only became known when the defense team requested to analyze it 
and that's when they discovered numerous lighters and knives, along with other miscellaneous items, inside the backpack. Jurors found the discovery of these items pivotal in proving Tina to be a liar, as she said they could not smoke meth because there was no lighter. The jury felt strongly that Tina Kozlowski, who was the DA's star witness, clearly lied as her version of events did not match the evidence. One juror went so far as to say, shame on the DA's office for bringing forth unbelievable witnesses and victims. The jury took issue not only with the DA's case, but also with her personally. They were upset by Ruscher's behavior during trial, saying that she belittled witnesses, rolled her eyes at times, openly mocked the defense, and overall lacked ethics and professionalism. Although the defense had a very hard time getting Lawrence to show up in court, clean and sober, he would turn out to be the most credible source, according to the jury. They found him to be genuine and truthful and believed his claim that Luke and Tina planned to rob Roger, and that's what sparked the events that unfolded. Not a single person from Luke Miller's family attended the trial. It seems evident that his lifestyle and potentially the heinous nature of his crime against Christy McKendall had torn the family apart. Today, Tina Kozlowski is still living in Wildwood Park and her children remain in the custody of her sister. The odds were certainly stacked against Roger Ocampo more than once. He gained the upper hand in a brutal attack which spared his life and then he was acquitted of first-degree murder when it seemed he may be facing a lifetime in prison. According to Roger's sister, he feels extremely blessed and grateful for his freedom, and he's thankful to be alive after being in a fight for his life. Today, Roger is doing well, working full-time, and staying home with his wife and family. He is extremely appreciative of Raj Malin and his defense team for believing in him and never leaving his side. His sister ended her message to me by saying, God is good. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Murderish. Check out Murderish.com if you'd like to know more about the podcast or me. On the website, you can sign up to support Murderish through Patreon, where you'll get immediate access to exclusive content, and have some of your dollars donated to a worthy nonprofit organization. Thank you to Tisha W., Tia M., Lori M., and Elizabeth M. for becoming Patreon supporters. I appreciate you guys so much. One more thing regarding Patreon. I'll be releasing a Patreon-only episode with behind-the-scenes information pertaining to this case. The journey regarding how Roger Ocampo's case came to my attention and my discussions with his defense team were fascinating, and I'm going to share all of it with Patreon subscribers. So stay tuned for that. Go to Murderish.com to sign up as a Patreon subscriber. I also have an exciting announcement to share with you guys. I will be narrating Season 2 of Scene of the Crime podcast. Season 1 covered the tragic and mysterious Delphi murders case. In Season 2 of Scene of the Crime, we're covering an unsolved, highly complex double murder case that may have been the work of a serial killer. A teaser trailer is available now if you'd like to take a listen. Just search Scene of the Crime Delphi in your favorite podcast app to hear a sneak peek of season two. 
and make sure to hit subscribe so you don't miss the season two launch coming this fall. If you're looking for a Murderish t-shirt, face mask, or other items, go to Murderish.com. Join the Murderish Facebook discussion group if you like talking true crime. You can also find me on Twitter at MurderishPod and on Instagram at MurderishPodcast. Remember to hit subscribe wherever you're listening now and tell a friend about the show. I'd love it if you wrote a review for the podcast in your favorite podcast app. Murderish is mixed and mastered by John and Jessica Buchanis of Audio Editing Solutions. Music by Nico of We Talk of Dreams. This episode was researched and written by me. All information for this episode came from direct interviews I conducted with Roger Ocampo's defense attorney, Raj Maline, as well as CSI forensics expert, Randy Beasley, private investigator, Raquel Aragon, and conversations with Roger's sister. Stick around for a little while longer to hear a promo for a true crime podcast you should check out. Crimes and Consequences is a podcast hosted by two attorneys. Many of the cases they cover are stories you've likely never heard of. Make sure to hit subscribe after you listen to the Crimes and Consequences podcast promo. As always, Ishers, thank you for joining me on another episode of Murderish. And remember, listening to this podcast does not make you a murderer. It just means you're murder-ish. I'm Talia. And I'm Tanya. And together we're two attorneys that really like to dive into the details of true crime cases, which is why we created Crimes and Consequences, our own true crime podcast. In our podcast, we really want to know the details of a case. So it's really important to us to try to get transcripts and audio or video recordings when we can. In addition, we don't really want to just rehash cases you've always heard. Of course, there's a place for the really famous cases, but it's also interesting to learn about true crime stories that you've never heard before. To give you just a little feel for how our podcast goes, here's a snippet from episode 34 called Closed Casket. Later on that same day at 3.08 p.m., the Smith residence received another phone call from the kidnapper. Here's part of that phone call. 4.58 a.m. Saturday the 1st of June. Okay, Saturday the 1st of June. Became one soul. Became one soul. What does that mean? No questions now, please. Do not kill my daughter, please. I mean, please. We love and miss y'all. So if you're like Tanya and I and you want to know the gritty details of the true crime case, listen to Crimes and Consequences, a hardcore true crime podcast. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. 
Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.